We're going to be in uh, 1 Samuel, two different chapters. 1 Samuel chapter 13 in your Bibles, verses 1 through 15. And then in in 1 Samuel chapter 15 later on this morning, um, as we look at Saul. And I've titled my message this morning, Saul the Lame Duck. And um, I've done that for a couple of reasons. Um, a lame duck in politics, of course, is an elected official whose successor has already been elected or chosen. And so a president becomes a lame duck president, uh, especially when he loses um, a bid to be uh, reelected for a second term. Um, and it's usually a very frustrating time uh, during then because uh, you still have the position, but you don't have as much influence. Um, and yet, a lot of times you can get by doing some things you probably shouldn't do during that time. And, and so, um, but that happens in other arenas also. Um, I know in churches I have left that there's a lame duck period. Um, and I've been very aware of that, uh, experienced that as a pastor. Did you know that there is actually a lame duck day? <laughs> I didn't know this before. They should advertise this more often um, and let us know that. But it's actually February 6th. Um, So I don't know if any of you have a birthday on February 6th, but probably not a good day to have a birthday. Um, But anyway, and that is because on February 6th, 1933, is when they passed the 20th Amendment. um, And that limited the amount of time your congressmen and women could be in office after the, you know, a successor was chosen. Them. And um, because before that, they could actually be in office for 13 months after the election, which was way too long, and, and politicians were doing all kinds of things they shouldn't do during those 13 months and all of that. Well, originally, the term lame duck um, came was in reference to someone who defaulted on a loan, took out a loan, and just couldn't make good on it. And um, and in reference to President, Calvin Coolidge was the first president um, that was called a lame duck president um, up until he was replaced. Well, I've titled this message today, Saul the Lame Duck. And it follows last week's message, Saul, who had the good start as the first king of Israel, but becomes a lame duck fairly quick on. Now, one might assume that Saul's reign was pretty short because he had a good start, but it didn't last all that long. But it it was a long reign. Um, Saul was one of a kind. He became a lame duck very early in his career as king of Israel, and he was king for 42 years. Can you imagine being a lame duck king for decades? That's really what Saul was, a lame duck king for decades. He knew he was being replaced. Now, no matter what position we're in, we all know we're going to be replaced someday. (laughs) But this was a little bit different as king to have the prophet come and say, you are being replaced. But he wasn't given a timeline. And for Saul, it stretched on for year after year Uh, with him reigning as a lame duck. And so he spent most of his career knowing that God had already rejected him as king. And yet he remains the king of Israel. 
It's also different because Saul, God had rejected him, and Samuel announced it long before Saul even knew who his successor was going to be, even though God had chosen it, and that successor knew it early on. You know, if you really stop to think about it, 1 Samuel is very riveting reading. Because you have a king um, whose successor marries his daughter, whose son is the best friend of the successor, (laughs) whose successor plays the harp for him to drive away evil spirits, and whose successor becomes a military hero under him. And most of that time, Saul had no idea that David was the man who was going to be his successor. Even though through most of that, David knew that he was going to be the successor to the king. Wow. There's a lot of interesting dynamics that go on in that whole story in First Samuel, so I encourage you to read it. I want to walk through um, the first 15 uh, verses of 1 Samuel chapter 13. They are at war, um, are going to war with the Philistines, and actually um, they kind of cause that war to come about. Saul chooses 2,000 men um, in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13 verses 1 through 4. Saul chooses 2,000 military men to join him at Michmash, and he also chooses 1,000 men, half as many, to join Jonathan at Gibeah. Jonathan attacks the Philistine outpost at, at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it, and so immediately they're upset, and they decide they're going to attack the Israelites, and so they get assembled for battle and all of that, But notice how Saul calls the Israelites to battle. He says, Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. What did we, what do you read there? Saul says, Saul attacked. But who had actually attacked? Jonathan, his son. There, very early on in the life of Saul, there was this issue with his pride. Now, I would just assume that any time you have to steal the limelight from your own son, you probably have a proud, a pride issue. <laughs> when, when, you know, when Jonathan goes and he attacks this outpost, And Saul takes credit for it and sends word all around Israel that he had done it when actually it was his son. There is an issue with Saul already very early on in Saul's career. A.W. Tozer down in the yellow print, he said, The victorious Christian neither exalts or downgrades himself. His interests have shifted from self to Christ. We'll come back to that theme a little bit, but one of the key things for each one of us as Christians is we have to decide who are we living to glorify. It's not our responsibility to downplay ourselves 
or to exalt ourselves because we are not the issue anymore once we're Christians. The real issue of our lives is how do I exalt and honor the Lord Jesus Christ? That's who we are to live for. And A.W. Tozer just says that so well. But Saul was still, even though he was the king of Israel, he was not living to honor God. He was living to honor himself. And so he even steals credit from something his own son does. And then you go to the next text in in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 5 through 10. And the Philistines, they come and they prepare for battle. And it wasn't even close to being fair. The Israelites, they tried to hide anywhere they could. Others of them just ran away, got away from it. Um, Saul's men were, it says, quaking with fear. Samuel was supposed to come and he was supposed to make the sacrifice and get the Lord's favor for the battle with the Philistines. And Samuel had told him uh, to wait until he got there to do that. Um, But Samuel was running late and he did not show up on time. And Saul's men began to scatter and Saul got scared. And so he just decided, well, I'm going to have to offer this sacrifice myself, even though he wasn't supposed to. Even though he was the king, he was not the prophet of God, and he was not supposed to make that that offering up to God. And, And Saul went ahead and made that burnt offering to God. And Samuel arrives just as he has finished making that offering up to God. And Saul goes out to greet him as though nothing is wrong and everything's just right with the world. It's interesting. You and I... We all have this same tendency. We can trust God unless we're waiting. (laughs) When we are waiting and we're getting impatient, that is when it's the hardest thing to trust God in the midst of that. Saul was okay. He didn't make that burnt offering. He didn't disobey God. He didn't disobey Samuel until he was waiting and he felt the time crunch and the pressure and all of that. And then he melted and he did what he was not supposed to do. When we are waiting, then we get to thinking that we have to take action. And any action seems justified at that point. The greatest spiritual test that we will experience come down to trusting God and waiting on God. Because a lot of times God shows up late. Has he ever done that for you? (laughs) God's timing and your timing are just totally different. And God does that sometimes. Sometimes he just shows up late. He showed up late to Mary and Martha when Lazarus died. And he will quite often show up late in our lives and he does it for a purpose. He shows up late in my life. And that is a test for each one of us. Well, Samuel goes on and he confronts Saul with this question. He says, if you think everything's fine, then then, um, he says, what have you done? (laughs) John, if you'll go to the next screen. Samuel says, what have you done? 
And Samuel goes into this lengthy explanation. Or Saul goes into this lengthy explanation. He says, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come when you were supposed to at the set time, and that the men, the Philistines, were assembling at Michmash, I thought. (laughs) And that's where we get in trouble sometimes. We think instead of doing what we know we should do. And so Saul offers all these explanations, and he says, the men were scattering, and you didn't come, Samuel, when you were supposed to come, and the Philistines were assembling, and they were going to come against me, and I had not sought the Lord's favor yet. And so then he uses this word, I felt compelled. Hmm. You ever felt compelled when you're waiting? I know I have. Compelled. And you can lay out all the rationale and all the arguments and all the excuses and all the blame game and all of those kind of things so that you can go ahead and get in front of God. And Samuel says, you have acted foolishly. At this moment, Samuel announces that Saul's kingdom will not endure because he did not obey God's command. And this is still pretty early in Saul's career. And Saul is told his successor has been appointed uh, by the Lord, even though Samuel doesn't know who that is yet, or even know who he is uh, for some time yet. Samuel leaves. And Saul goes about counting men. It's interesting. Isn't that kind of a tendency we have? We go about doing things that are just things to keep us busy. Not purposeful, not they don't really accomplish anything. But what Saul did here after he was disciplined by Samuel is he just went about counting men. He could have had anyone do that for him. But instead of repenting, instead of doing any number of other things or focusing his life in a direction that was good, he just did something that was mind-numbing. <laughs> he just did, you know, whatever it was, and for him it was just counting men. So he goes, one, two, three. <laughs> and the temptation for us is instead of repenting when we've sinned, is for us just to get involved in doing something that doesn't matter to anyone. And that's exactly what Saul did. Saul was deceptive here. He greets Samuel as though he'd done nothing wrong. He blames Samuel and Saul's soldiers instead of taking any responsibility. He says, man, my soldiers, they were fleeing, they were leaving. And he acted as though he had no options whatsoever. He could have felt compelled to pray. He could have felt compelled to call the elders of the church, you know, the elders of Israel together to pray for wisdom, but the only thing he felt compelled to do was to disobey God and offer that burnt offering in disobedience. The price tag for that for Saul was that none of Saul's children would ever sit on the throne and they would not have a le- he would not have a legacy. Because Saul would not submit himself to God or to Samuel. Um, He was never allowed to have true authority over Israel. 
Well, that's one story in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Then chapter 14 has a story, but chapter 15, which is where I'm going to now, ties together, and there's these two stories that almost, you know, they just fit hand in glove on top of each other, and you begin to see that Saul, what he does over here, he learns nothing from. And he does the exact same thing over here in chapter 15, even though he should have learned something. So in, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, you have this, this, this similar story coming up. And, and what you find is that Saul's sin in chapter 15 is not an accident. It's not one of those one-time things that occur in our lives, but rather it's part of his sin nature. It's, it's his tendency. Now, because every one of us in this room have a sin nature, (laughs) we all have a tendency, but we all have tendencies in different directions. And your tendency is not somebody else's tendency, but you have one. And you have a tendency to err, to disobey God in a certain area. There's just a natural draw to do that. And I have my own set, for sure. Um, Just ask my wife. (laughs) So we all have that sin nature, but Saul has this sin nature. Samuel goes to Saul and he tells him to go and attack the Amalekites. God wants this. God wants the Amalekites wiped out and he wants them to totally destroy everything. Now we as Americans have a struggle with this passage because God tells him to go in and wipe out animals, Children, women, everything. Not to leave anything there. Perhaps we are getting so that we understand that just a little bit in, in just in dealing with ISIS and Islam. You cannot have peace with people that are totally out to completely destroy you. That is impossible. That's, that's a mirage. That, that's an imaginary hope. The Amalekites were set to completely destroy God's people. They wanted to destroy the name of God from the face of the earth. That was their aim. That was their goal. And God said, there is no way you can have peace with these people. You have to take them out. And you have to destroy them entirely. You can't leave anything whatsoever. And again... For a lot of us soft bellies, that doesn't set real well, but God knew what he was doing there. Absolutely nothing was to be left. The Amalekites were going to destroy God's people, and there was no room for compromise. So in verses 4 through 6, Saul starts off. And he starts off in obedience. And he put an army together. And he was even faithful to remember the Kenites. And the Kenites were a group of of pagans who had been kind to the Israelites in Israel's past. And so he told the Kenites, he said, you need to go and you need to separate yourself from the Amalekites and get completely away from them. And the Kenites obeyed. They just, they removed themselves. And so God was faithful. Samuel was faithful. Saul was faithful uh, to those Kenites for their friendship with Israel in the past. And um, so they separate. Then, 
in verses 7 through 9, Saul thought he could improve upon God's military strategy. (laughs) And, And, you know, God lays out a plan, and sometimes you and I think we can improve upon it. We know just a little bit more than God does about our situation. You know how that is. And Saul thought he could improve upon his military strategy. And so instead of killing King Agag, which was what he was supposed to do, he thought, no, that's not what we do with kings. We take them alive. And we interrogate them, and we learn from them, and we, you know, we do some other things with King Agag. So he took him alive instead of killing him on the spot. And then, you know, it didn't really make sense to kill the best of the cattle and the sheep and the fat calves and the lambs. And I have to tell you, as a farmer, that really doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, I mean, even right now in this drought that we're having and there are semi-loads after semi-loads for miles behind some of these livestock yards with, with ranchers having to sell out their cattle at this time. And, and, and it's so sad to watch. But they aren't taking their very best ones. They're selling off the worst ones and the weakest ones and the oldest ones first. They're getting rid of those and we're kind of valuing those ones that we think there's the most potential for profit in the future. And we're hanging on to those. And so you can kind of see what Saul's thinking is there. Well, there's no sense. I mean, we'll obey God when it comes to the the old cows. (laughs) And the ones that haven't produced a calf for a while. And, and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll obey God in that. But let's keep the best of the cows and the best of the sheep and the, the fat and calves and all of that. And so they obey God. Saul obeys God in regard to the plunder that they didn't covet, didn't desire, didn't really want. But they disobeyed in regard to the plunder that they coveted. Watch the things that you really covet. Watch the things that you really, really desire. Could God lay his hand on those things? Would you obey him in those things? If he wanted you to give up something that you really, really love, would you be willing to give that up for him? That's a good test in our lives. And then in verses 10 through 12, it says that God was grieved and told Samuel that he was sorry that Saul was made king because of his disobedience. And Samuel was also grieved and he cried out to the Lord all night long. Samuel goes to meet Saul at this point. (laughs) But Saul finds out that... uh, Samuel finds out that Saul's gone on to Carmel. And what is Saul doing at Carmel? It's the most interesting thing. He has gone to set up a monument to himself. Now, as far as I know, none of you... And I haven't, that I know of, ever set up a monument of myself (laughs) or yourself. Saul 
is so preoccupied with his self and his own glory and all of that that he goes to Carmel and Carmel, if you've been, if you go to Israel, Carmel is a mountain and it sits up high above a valley and you can see the Sea of Galilee from it and all of that and it's um, really, it's up there and it's a good walk. And he goes up on this mountain and then he sets up this monument so that people would honor him. <laughs> wow. Saul's ambition was to honor himself rather than God. And then he sees Samuel. And Saul lies to him. In verses 13 through 15, he blessed Samuel. He says, oh, what a great day to see you. And he tells him, I have fully obeyed the Lord's instructions. <laughs> the problem is that partial obedience is not total obedience. And Saul confronts him with the obvious facts. He says, um, if you obeyed fully the Lord's instructions, what, what is this bleeding a sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And then notice Saul's answer. He, he, he contradicts himself. He says, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. He's blaming his soldiers again instead of blaming himself. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. And he hadn't totally destroyed the rest. He'd left King Agag alive. So he wasn't even telling the truth there. He blames the people. He doesn't take personal responsibility. The soldiers brought the animals uh, from the Amalekites to sacrifice, and he rationalizes, and he makes excuses, and all of this stuff. And, and, you know, he just, he goes online. And Samuel couldn't handle it at this point. Samuel says in verse 16, he says, Stop! (laughs) And he lays out the case against Saul. One of the key ingredients for us as Christians is to get to the place in our life where the Holy Spirit can convict us and talk to us without having to raise his voice and say, Stop! I've had enough! The Holy Spirit wants to be able to just have a conversation with us been too many times in my life where I've raised my voice with my kids. The same thing is true with the Holy Spirit and with us. He wants to just be able to have a conversation with us and talk to us before we get carried away in our sin. But Saul was so carried away that Samuel had to say, Stop! Exclamation point. And then Samuel lays out this case. He says, you know, once you were small in your own eyes, you hid in the baggage when we went to anoint you as king. (laughs) And God exalted you to be the head of Israel and the Lord anointed you king. And then the Lord gives you very clear instructions on what to do here with the Amalekites and you disobeyed and you did evil and then you called it good. You said, I have fully obeyed the Lord's commands. It's pretty bad when we say we are doing the right thing and we're disobeying God. 
Saul repeats. He doesn't repent. He repeats his former line that he is innocent, that he's obedient, that he is justified in his own eyes, even though he himself has, is talking at the time about bringing King Agag back alive. You see that here uh, in, in these verses. Wow, I, I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. He knows he wasn't supposed to. He was supposed to totally destroy him. <laughs> and then we get to these famous verses. Probably of all the verses in 1 Samuel, these are the two most famous verses that are quite often referred to in sermons. But Samuel says to Saul, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Wow. Those are some great words. And they speak to us right there. You know, there is nothing God wants more from us than our obedience. In other words, you and I can't, we can't go over here because we are sinning in this area. We can't go over here and do something and it justify our sin over here. Because God desires obedience more than sacrifice. More than a substitute for obedience and all of that. John, if you'll skip to uh, 18. There's a couple things I, I, I want us to know and do this morning. Number one is I, I just want to say that God will allow us to be lame duck Christians. It's just not a place that we want to be at. Christians who have a Savior but haven't surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. And we live in American culture where there is a lot of Christians out there. They prayed the sinner's prayer. But Jesus is not their Lord. And Saul was that kind of a king. Saul lived for himself. And I, I just I want to say as clearly as I can from the scripture this morning, God's call for every one of us is to move past being a lame duck Christian where we have Jesus in our heart, but it doesn't make any difference in our lives. God's desire for each one of us is that we obey him. Um, we are to be obedient and not lose God's blessing. So there's some things to do. Number one, avoid pride and selfishness. <laughs> avoid deception and excuses and justification. And then we need to live in trust. Even when we're waiting, even when God seems to be showing up late in our life, and he's not doing what we thought he was going to do when, had a conversation just this week with my brother about some things he's, he's just frustrated with God about. Because he knows God told him something and it hasn't happened yet. 
And we all have those things in our lives where we just believe that God has promised this. But it hasn't happened yet. Will we obey in that time of waiting? And then we need to live the truth, not cover it up. Live the truth with God and with others and then live in obedience to God because it is better than sacrifice.